0: Welcome back to the Orthodox West Gazette, a miscellany of talks, interviews, ponderings, and presentations. I'm Stephen Brannan, and I'm joined again today by Father Patrick Cardine to talk about all things epiphany. We'll cover the history of the feast, some of what's in its liturgies, and some uniquely Western traditions which have accompanied this great feast day and season. We may even have one or two of our own theological epiphanies along the way. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Father Patrick, thank you for joining me again. Uh, it's been a long time in between podcasts once again, but uh, maybe maybe one of these days we'll find a more regular schedule. I'm just glad that we uh, were able to get together and record this one, and today we're talking about Epiphany, so I'm really excited to hear what we get to talk about.
1: Yeah, this is a great, great, one of the great feasts of the church, and uh, so I'm looking forward to our discussion, and thanks for setting it up.
0: Of course. So, Epiphany. Do we want to start with a little background?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess we could start with the name. <laughs> um, yeah, that works. So, yeah, in Greek, and this, this word is used in the New Testament, actually, but the apostles used it. The, the, the word uh, in Greek uh, for epiphany um, referred to sort of the appearance of a king or an emperor. And the, the Greeks, or in the East, they refer to the feast by a theophany, theophany, which is very similar, which is sort of the, the appearance of a god, a deity, So it sort of is used both ways and both terms are very similar, uh essentially meaning, you know, appearance or uh you know manifestation, revelation, that kind of thing. Theophany more points to the the sort of physical or the appearance of a deity in an observable manner. Epiphany is the manifestation of a king, and um, So, yeah, so it's used in the New Testament. Uh, But the the feast goes by lots of different names. Um, You know, in in England, for example, uh, and you might be familiar with Shakespeare's play, Twelfth Night. Um, Hmm. So it's it's referred to as Twelfth Night, um, which is really the eve of Epiphany. So January 5th, typically the night before, although sometimes they reckoned the dates a little bit differently, and it would be the actual evening of the feast itself on the 6th. Um, and also a very popular name in Europe and in the West, because of our emphasis on, on the visit of the, the Magi, is Three Kings Day. Some places they refer to it as a little Christmas, especially mm-hmm. like in um, Italy, Spain, Gaul, because they, they actually would give presents uh, at Epiphany. The, the, the gift giving was more at Epiphany than at Nativity or Christmas. Um, but it's referred Which to makes as sense. Little Christmas. yeah, Because of the gifts of the Magi? But yeah, so the the history, you know, that's that's where we get the name for so you'll hear epiphany theophany epiphany in the west, theophany in the east, but the Greek fathers also use the term epiphany as well in a lot of their sermons. So we shouldn't get too hung up about the terminology. But the first thing is just maybe to fix the setting. Some people may not be familiar with the liturgical calendar, how that works. So In the liturgical calendar, especially the temporal calendar, which follows basically the life of Christ, the sanctoral calendar is sort of feast days of particular saints. The temporal calendar follows the life of Christ. There's two primary cycles. There's the cycle of incarnation, Christmas, so the coming of Jesus as a human, um, and that runs through Epiphany and Epiphany Tide. And then the second cycle is the cycle of redemption, Easter, which runs through Pentecost. And so you've got these two, you know, the entire year is hinged on these two Mm -hmm. cycles, the cycle of incarnation, the cycle of redemption. And the cycle of incarnation um, in the Western tradition actually, uh, which is different than in the East, begins our official sort of uh, liturgical year. So our liturgical year begins with Advent, which is the preparation, of course, for Christmas and, Mm -hmm. and the cycle of incarnation And we go through Christmas, and then we go into Epiphany, and uh, then there are up to six Sundays after Epiphany, which we call Epiphany Tide, Um, and and it's six or less, depending on when Easter falls. And and then that brings us right up to Septuagesima, which is pre-Lent, and into the redemption cycle, which, of course, takes us through Pentecost, and then we have all those Sundays after Pentecost, which are... Right. I think the Anglicans call that ordinary time, don't they? Because it's just kind of this long stretch of... Uh, I, th- of I think
0: of, the uh, Roman Catholics and Anglicans nowadays call it ordinary time, um, yeah. not because it's just ordinary uh, as opposed to special, but because it's um, being counted. Uh, right. So that it's, it's the Sundays that are being counted from some cardinal feast right, day, like right. Pentecost or Epiphany.
1: Yeah, so we have the we have the Sundays after Pentecost, and then we roll back around to Advent and do it all over again. But the, the important thing is, I want us to fix um, Epiphany solidly in the temporal calendar. It is in that cycle of incarnation, so it, it's very closely related to Christmas, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Um, and it's solidly fixed in themes and character and everything with Christ's uh, with Christ's first coming. So that's the first thing. The second thing, as we begin to look at the background for how this feast developed and even came into being liturgically in the church, is to remember, uh, to remember that quite often, um, quite often, that liturgical developments in the church were influenced by response to heresy. Hmm. I mean, huh, when I say often, I mean very often. I mean, many of the prayers, the creed and the liturgy, so many things were basically developed in response uh, or influenced by response to heresy. And the heresies, of course, at this time were basically Christological heresies. So mm-hmm. they were false teachings about who Jesus Christ is. And Epiphany and Christmas is all about who Jesus is. You know, this baby is right. born of a virgin. Who is this baby? Who is this human baby? Um, He is God manifest in our human flesh. And so it's no surprise that the, the surrounding this feast um, there are, there's a heresy that's being contended with uh, you know, in, in relation to Epiphany. Um, and in fact, interestingly enough, the first real solid reference we have to the themes of Epiphany Uh, particularly the Baptism of Christ, and January 6th um, come from Clement of Alexandria around the year 200. So that's the first real reference we have. And Clement is not referencing the Orthodox Feast of Epiphany here. He is actually um, writing about these Gnostic heretics, uh, the Basilides. Um, And they were, he's, he's, he's referencing them and talking about how these Gnostics, were um, staying up all night on the 5th, January 5th, and doing these vigil readings about the baptism of Christ. And they were basically celebrating the baptism of Christ on January 6th as the true divine birthday of Jesus. So, So essentially that Jesus is not eternally divine, but his Godhead, he's welcomed into the Godhead or birthed into the Godhead at his
0: baptism. Okay is is this because of the descent of the
1: the holy spirit yes and the and the father's voice behold my beloved Mm -hmm. son you know so 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 this is so this is the first reference we actually have to um baptism of christ being celebrated on january 6 is from clement in the year 200 which is a reference to heretics interesting (laughs) uh and that and that where it's kind of uniquely tied to birth uh, they're not really celebrating his human birth, his his actual nativity, but the reference to birth is that he's being birthed into the Godhead at his Let's baptism. See. So, so you've got this subtle connection there between baptism and birth. Hmm. But, but, but it first comes from from heretics. So, about one hundred and sixty years later, or so, you know, we're like in the three, thirties, forties, fifties, right in that, you know, somewhere in there. We see the first official ecclesiastical um, reference to the Feast of Epiphany uh, in the Orthodox East, and and the feast does originate um, in the East. As this feast, you know, is celebrated in the East, it it does notably emphasize the actual Nativity of Christ, his human birth, and his baptism. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um it also in the east by the way uh, which some might find interesting because we don't see it in the prayers today but originally the uh the magi the visit of the magi and also um the wedding of Cana were also uh you know part of of this feast and part of the themes in, in the, east. the east yes okay. yes absolutely so this is all you you see it in the sermons of the fathers, and that they're they're preaching sermons on the feast for the feast, and they're preaching about these things. But but the 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 essence of the the, the Orthodox in the East, their their the development of this feast is certainly partially, at least partially, in response to these Gnostics, and they're saying no, Jesus wasn't adopted into the Godhead at his baptism; he was. He, he was he is eternally divine. He is completely you know God of very God at his human birth and before, um, and by the way, this is what John um, the apostle is writing about in John one. Same same heretics you know earlier uh, uh, again, but um, but they're emphasizing that he is he is eternally divine. He's divine at his human birth. And that his baptism doesn't make him divine, but it is a manifestation or a revelation of his divinity. It's where it's where the curtains being pulled back and we're seeing him. Uh, we're seeing that the, the triune Godhead manifest in the baptism really in the first explicit way, you know, uh, as right. recorded in, in the scriptures. So that's how this feast in the East kind of develops, and develops at least in part, maybe not 100%, but at least in part in reaction to, uh, to these Gnostics. Um, now, I mentioned the, the wedding at Cana, and you were a little, uh, little surprised. Now, I think I, I was surprised, too, when I learned this, because uh, it doesn't show up in today's in the East, you know, in the Eastern Orthodox you know, uh, themes for this feast. The wedding of Cain doesn't, as far as I know, doesn't show up at all. Um, but it was actually there in the early church. And I'll give you a couple little anecdote, historical anecdotes, which are really actually quite fascinating. Um, because it, it's it, it's a prominent um, part of our trilogy of themes mm-hmm. in, in the West. But St. Epiphanius, who was, I think, in Cyprus, 4th uh, century, I believe, um, he speaks about the 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 miracle at Cana at the wedding and and also about the baptism in reference mm-hmm. to this feast. And he says something really, really interesting. He tells a story about him his own day on January 6th, that there were, it was common in various cities for there to be for the miracle to be repeated uh, on January 6th. Oh, by the way, let me yeah. add this too. It was very traditional customary, The early fathers said that the that the wedding at Cana miracle happened on January 6th.
0: Hmm.
1: So 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 they said that and the visit of the Magi happened on the 6th. But anyway, he tells a story of how he personally uh, witnessed and drank the miracle wine on January 6th. um, I think in in Turkey somewhere, but um, a city in Turkey. So that's kind of an interesting anecdote about yeah. the connection of the Feast of the, mir- the, the, the Miracle of Cana, the turning of the water into wine, um, that is rooted in the Eastern celebration really early on. It just it falls out. It just fades away. It's just no right. longer right. there anymore. So part of our um, difficulty sometimes when people are looking at um, orthodoxy and, and 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 the history of the church and the history of the Feast of Epiphany and its relationship to Christmas and East and West. And, you know, how do all these things fit together? What came first and, and that sort of thing? Um, it, it can be a little complicated, but I think we can sort of at least give a real simple gloss that would help us to, 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 to maybe make sense of that. Okay. Basically, um, so basically December 25th, the Feast of Christmas or the Nativity of Christ developed in the West At the same time, okay, that Theophany, particularly in Rome, I'm going to say, particularly in Rome, uh, around the same time that Theophany and January 6th developed in the East. Okay. So these are almost concurrent happenings. And then, um, you know, roughly 40, 50 years later, that's a gross oversimplification because it was sort of a little different in different places. But let's just for ease, about forty to fifty years later, there's a cross pollinization that goes on. And the the West becomes exposed to Theophany and adopts adopts January sixth. The East becomes exposed to Christmas, Nativity on the twenty fifth. And they they basically there's this cross pollinization that goes on.
0: We have already recorded a podcast about Christmas, and you uh, described the really fascinating um, uh, sermon by Saint John Chrysostom, where he's describing how the feast of Christmas came came from the West to them. It was a really, really interesting uh, little nugget there. So, uh, I encourage anyone to go listen to that podcast that hasn't already.
1: Yeah, I'll, um, I'll I'll make a real brief mention of that of that here in just a moment. Um, so, so basically in the East, you've got Epiphany or Theophany on January 6th. Um, you have the emphasis of, uh, Jesus's birth, Jesus's baptism, the miracle at Cana and the visit at the Magi. In Rome, you have the celebration of Christ's birth on December 25th, long before Epiphany came there, um, from the East. And so when you get this cross-pollinization, something really interesting happens, uh, which confuses us all today. But basically, um, when, when, when the West receives Epiphany, she moves the visit of the Magi to January 6th. She pushes it forward to January 6th, and she celebrates the visit of the Magi, and she receives the emphasis of the baptism and the miracle at Cana, and those become the sort of like Trilogy of you know of epiphany in the West, right? In the Eastern tradition, what happens is when this sort of cross-pollination goes on, and maybe a little bit later—I don't know the exact dates—but eventually, at some point, the miracle of Cana just fades away in the East. It's not really associated, as far as I know, anymore. Uh, the visit of the Magi gets pushed back to Christmas, back to December twenty-fifth. So they don't, there's no mention of the Magi in, in Eastern Orthodoxy on January 6th anymore. So we push it forward to the 6th, they push it back to the 25th. They get rid of the wedding of Cana, we keep the wedding of Cana. And then we both keep the baptism on January 6th. So that's kind of how everything gets shuffled around a little bit. And there's reasons for it all, which are, would be way too complicated to go into, you know, maybe in a, in a podcast like this. Sure. Um, but that's where we have today. And so in the, in the East we have, it's really a singular theme and that's the baptism of Christ. And in the West, it's uh visit of Magi, baptism of Christ and wedding of Cana.
0: That really gives some good uh, background and history about how and why these three seemingly disparate and unrelated at first glance events are all linked, uh, still in the West.
1: Yes. And and I'm going to, in just a moment, we're going to maybe talk a little bit about, about the themes of each one. The, the, the connection between the baptism of Christ and Christ's nativity is absolutely fascinating. To me, mm-hmm. it's one of the most profound things in Epiphany and Christmas mm-hmm. and their connection. But I'll mention that in just a minute. I did want to say a little something about what you already said about how the East adopted December 25th which was ancient in the West, and the East basically recognized this, but it was around late 370s, early 380s, and we start to see sermons from Gregory Nazianzus, and he's referencing the fact that they've already celebrated the birth of Christ, and they're getting ready to celebrate the baptism of Christ. Hmm. So that's 380. He preaches a sermon. So it's obvious from this, it's already they've already adopted December 25th by then. Right. Um, but, but it happens at different times in different places. That's one of the earliest um, references of this. Um, the Armenian church never adopted it. They still celebrate the Nativity of Christ on January 6th. Um, and you mentioned St. John Chrysostom. So it was, he, he's, he's, he is uh, recorded at, in, in 386, so six years after Gregory Nazianzen's sermon, as he had just been ordained a priest in Antioch, um, and, and he was preaching, and he was working very hard to try and get the Antiochians to, to begin to celebrate the Nativity on the 25th. There were two factions in Antioch, and he references this. He says, these Antiochians over here have already been doing this. They've been celebrating Nativity of Christ according to the venerable and ancient tradition of Rome, is what he, he references. He appeals to Rome here. Mm -hmm. And he says, this group of Antiochians have been doing this for 10 years already. So this is 19, or uh, 386. So, Mm -hmm. so at least since 376, which coincides with that same period there with Gregory Nazianzen. And he's then trying to get this other more conservative group who doesn't want to make the change. Like, no, we've always celebrated it, you know, on, um, on January 6th, but he ends up winning the day and, um, and gets, gets everybody to shift to December twenty fifth, so that that gives you a little bit of background about what was going on with these these themes being separated out between yeah. December twenty fifth and January sixth. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like a you know, at least it gives us a sense for how these different themes and how these dates work and and the relationship between uh, between East and West. Yes, that's helpful. And then when we get into you know the the actual themes uh, of the feast basically the 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 primary theme on the actual feast on january 6th is the the uh, visit of the magi and the gifts that they bring and the adoration that they give to the child jesus and that's why it's called in some countries three kings day and then on the octave day is the uh the octave day of epiphany the focus is on christ's baptism and then on the second sunday Uh, in epiphany after epiphany second sunday after epiphany is when we have the readings for the, the 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 miracle at cana
0: okay so the three themes the way they get liturgically split up is on the sixth the focus is on the magi on the octave of the sixth the focus is on the baptism and then on the sunday following that octave the focus is on Cana.
1: Yes, that's right. So this the the first and I don't I actually don't remember exactly when this got implemented, but the first Sunday after Epiphany um it, the readings are for uh the Holy Family when Jesus was a young boy 12 years old and his parents left him at the temple. Um and then hmm. the next Sunday, so it's the second Sunday after Epiphany that that we emphasize the uh the the marriage of Cana.
0: Okay. So we have kind of a very linear progression in the West with the the birth on the 25th, the visit of the Magi, uh, when Jesus is an infant still, and then the scene from Jesus's childhood are all kind of celebrated yes. in that order before we get to and the baptism.
1: Exactly. Then the baptism... And then the wedding, then the wedding miracle. Even those two are in the, in, in the linear, you know, progression of things. So yes, exactly. And it shows up in all our hymns this way too. All of our hymns reference these themes in order, you know, and it's all sort of sequential, which is, which is interesting. So, um, three Kings, you know, a lot of Eastern Orthodox, when they learn that our epiphany beast itself on the day that we actually focus all of our attention on the three Kings find this very unusual they're not used to this because for them epiphany is about the baptism um so at first it's a little unusual but getting a little bit of the background you can see how this sort of happens and then we get the baptism you know seven days later um at any rate that's our whole focus on january 6th is is the visit of the the magi and it colors everything and it's a it's really a fantastic emphasis and theme i mean once you really experience it year after year it's terrific um, to, to have this, and uh, it 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 emphasizes our cultural traditions, all of our prayers, our hymns. So the we say three kings. If they're not. It's never said in scripture that there are three, but tradition sort of settled into three. Of course, there's three gifts, and the Venerable Bede actually speaks of a tradition that these there's three because they represent the three races of men stemming from Noah's three sons, that they're descendants from the three sons of Noah. And, and Bede actually even gives them physical characteristics. One is young and beardless and ruddy. Another one is old and white haired. And another one is, uh, is African. Um, and um, he describes them. We, and he gives us their names, too, actually. Casper uh, comes from Ham. He's the one who brings the frankincense. Melchior is a descendant of Shem. He brings the gold, and Balthazar uh, is a descendant of Japheth, who brings the myrrh. So, you know, these are some of the sort of traditions surrounding the the, the wise men or the three kings. And there's another tradition that says that they were actually baptized by St. Thomas, and they came to be seen as saints in the church, and we actually seek their intercession. Um, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but when we bless homes, uh, we invoke their intercession uh, for the family and the home and the peace of God to come and visit the home. They, they don't have feast days that are celebrated liturgically, but they are actually mentioned in the Martyology of the church, uh, all three of them in, in, in January on their respective dates. A couple other interesting things, actually, about the the wise men, the Magi. Um, the uh, their relics are in the uh, in the Cologne Cathedral in Germany. Oh wow! Um, and they are venerated there. Um, they were brought from Persia, so they're thought to be from Persia, from from mm. Iran originally. Um, they were brought from Persia to Constantinople by uh, Saint Helena, mm. and um, and then they were transferred from there. Uh, to Milan in the 5th century, and then from Milan to Cologne, Germany in in the 12th century, mid-12th century. And um, there's a whole story about them being brought to Cologne, and they were placed on three separate ships, and which is the genesis of the Carible, Car, uh, Carol, I saw three ships assailing. So that's where that comes from, is the translation of of the, the, the relics of the Magi. Fascinating. Um, they were of a priestly caste, a scholarly priestly caste, we believe. Um, and they're referred to as kings popularly, not because they're mentioned that in the scriptures, other than in the prophecies that are assigned to this feast, refer to the kings bringing gifts and even gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, so, you know, there's there's a wonderful and beautiful hymn by that great poet, Prudentius, this is the hymn for Lauds, uh, the morning hour um, for the Feast of Epiphany. It says, um, O more than mighty cities known, dear Bethlehem, in thee alone, salvation's Lord from heaven took birth in human form upon the earth. And from a star that far outshone the radiant circle of the sun, in beauty swift the tidings ran of God on earth in flesh of man the wise men seeing him so fair bow low before him and with prayer their treasured orient gifts unfold of incense myrrh and royal gold the fragrant incense which they bring the gold proclaim him god and king the bitter spicy dust of myrrh foreshadows his new sepulcher so this is very characteristic of a lot of the hymns and poetry surrounding the feast is the kings and their gifts, and the incense uh, references his a symbol of his divinity, the gold, his kingship, and the myrrh, his death. In the feast itself, uh, Psalm 70 or 71 and Isaiah 60 are referenced uh, in reference to the three kings. Psalm 70 or 71 speaks of the kings of Tharsis and of the isle shall offer presents, the kings of Arabians, that's why we call them kings, and of Saba shall bring gifts, and all the kings of the earth shall adore him. Um, and then Isaiah 61 uh, through 6 is a really powerful and beautiful passage, which is the reading for the Feast of Epiphany, the first reading. It says, um, Arise, be enlightened, O Jerusalem, for thy light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and a mist the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall walk in thy light, and the kings in the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thy eyes round about and see. All these are gathered together. They are come to thee. Thy son shall come from afar, and thy daughter shall rise up at thy side. Then shalt thou see and abound, and thy heart shall wander and be enlarged, when the multitude of the sea shall be converted to thee. The reason I'm reading this is because the emphasis from this passage and from the feast is the coming in of the Gentiles. Hmm. The, the joining of the pagan nations and the gentiles and that's what epiphany really on the feast day itself that's the entire theme the strength of the Gentiles shall come to thee the multitude of camels shall cover thee the dromedaries of median and ephah they all shall from Saba shall come bringing gold and frankincense and showing forth praise to the lord so these are the passages surrounding the feast which speak Sort of used prophetically to speak of the three kings, which represent really the coming in, the unfolding in of the Gentiles and, and the pagan nations into the into the kingdom. And uh, the, the collect for the feast uh, on Epiphany says, God who on this day, by the leading of a star, dids manifest thy only begotten son to the Gentiles um, and, and, and speaks again. And so Christ is spoken of as the cornerstone of the, of two, the two, the corner, there's two walls joined at the corner. Mm-hmm. And so there's another major theme that he's the cornerstone that joins the two together. And the two that he's joining is Israel, the people of God and the pagan nations and the Gentile. Right. And so this is all part of the manifestation of God. He has manifest himself to the nations now. And, and revealed himself. And that's the emphasis for us of, of, you know, the three kings and the magi coming in. Another thing I've preached on this many times on the feast day. If we think about it, the, the wise men are our fathers in the faith. I mean, assuming you're a Gentile. So, you know, if you're not Jewish, our father in the faith, the one that, that really brought Christ to the non Jew are these three, are the wise men. Wow, is it sort of a, long, a, a, long before Pentecost? Yes, unique way to think about our sort of particular relationship to these three. Um, Interesting, and um, I I tell our kids all the time when we go bless the house. Uh, you know, their imagination. You know, we talk about how marvelous it's going to be to encounter these three fabulous creatures. <laughs> you know, uh, and all the regalia in heaven one day, um, and and how spectacular uh, that will be, uh, and and it's kind of a special thing that we invite them to come bless bless the home. Um, you know, I think it's also on the feast of Epiphany, the Mass itself, uh, the secret prayer is actually pro- really worth quoting. It's short, but it's beautiful, and and I think it's worth quoting. It says. We beseech thee, O Lord, mercifully, to look upon the gifts of thy church. So we're, we're at the point in the Mass where we're basically offering the gifts and, um, to God that we're about to receive back as his body and blood. Um, mercifully, look upon the gifts of thy church, wherein no longer offering gold and frankincense and myrrh, we sacrifice and receive him who by those gifts was mystically signified, even Jesus Christ, thy son, our Lord. Oh. That's beautiful. So that's a, that's a really powerful, powerful connection there between our gifts and receiving Christ back and the, the gifts of the Magi. So a lot of the fathers, so this is not sort of just a, the, the Magi thing is not something that developed later. The, the fathers of the church, especially in the West, but in these two, but the, in the West, this was the dominant um, content of their sermons when they're in their sermonizing for the Feast of Epiphany. Uh, Saint Leo, who is a doctor of the Church, I mean, he's got to be one of my favorite preachers. Uh, you know, of of the Western Fathers, amazing preacher. His Nativity se- sermons are f- phenomenal. But he also had a whole series of Epiphany seasons, and they almost all center around the Three Kings hmm. or the Wise Men. So, and 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 Augustine too preaches some phenomenal sermons about this and how you know, the angel came to the shepherds, the Jews, but then he came to the wise men. And you know, he he has a beautiful way of sort of paralleling these two different revelations between the rusticity of the shepherds and the, uh, sort of really pagan science of these pagan wise men. So that's, you know, kind of a, I mean, there's a lot more that could be said, of course, but, uh, that's the theme of the the Magi and 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 the wise men, which is our our dominant focus uh, on the feast day itself. And then on the octave, um, we we move on to emphasizing um, the baptism
0: of briefly, baptized. just in case uh, people aren't familiar with the the concept of an octave um, in in the West. What is an octave of a feast day, and what what is its character usually like?
1: So oct is eight, octopus, octagon. Um, it's the eighth day. It's actually the same day as the feast. So if the feast falls on a Wednesday, it's the Wednesday. So you count that day twice, you get eight. So it's the eighth day. And um, basically, you're celebrating that feast every day in the octave, Unless another feast um, supplants it, but generally you celebrate the feast every day in the octave, and on, then on the eighth day, you know, you that's sort of it's sort of like a it's a, a repeat of the feast in a sense. It sort mm-hmm. of it comes to its full culmination. Um, but in the case of the of Epiphany, instead of saying the same Mass that you said on Epiphany, we're saying the Mass. It is at the Epiphany octave, but you're saying the propers for the Mass, the readings, the prayers, all center around the baptism instead of the okay. visit of the of the wise men it's still epiphany it's kind of like yep. a repeat of the feast day itself you know so so baptism clearly figures in in the western celebration of epiphany it's just on the octave day not on the day of this this hymn that we that we often sing has three parts the first reference is the wise men um, and the second uh, the uh, the baptism it's the Vespers hymn actually. Um, well, let me read the first one. I didn't read it. Why impious pious Herod vainly fear that Christ the Savior cometh here? He takes no earthly realms away who gives the crown that lasts for aye. To greet his birth, the wise men went, led by the star before them sent, called on by light towards light they pressed, and by their gifts their God confessed. So that's the first stanza or two stanzas of this hymn. The Vespers sin for Epiphany spoken in the wise men. The next stanza is in holy Jordan's purest wave, the heavenly lamb vouchsafed to lave, that he to whom was sin unknown might cleanse his people from their own. So it's a reference to the baptism. So a little something about baptism. And this is really captures me every year. Um, I love this, uh, this theme. And how the West handles it, I uh, honestly I don't know if this shows up in the same way in the East's emphasis or not. Um, but I, I could I could I could learn that I suppose pretty easily. Um, but at any rate, remember the Gnostic sects are reading this account of of the baptism of Christ uh, to emphasize that he is it's his birth into the Godhead. Um, And so they're using this story of the baptism to promote their heresy, whereas the Orthodox Christians are emphasizing the baptism and the nativity of Christ, his birth, to to show that he is eternally, you know, God and, and part of the triune Godhead. And that the baptism is not his adoption into the Godhead, but it is his manifestation that he is the eternally begotten son of the father, God, a very God. So the emphasis of his baptism in the East here uh, really is to, you know, that's the emphasis is that the triune revelation and the eternal divinity of the son. But there's another really fascinating theological connection between his baptism uh, in the Jordan and his birth. Okay. And this really is the becomes one of the dominant themes of our Christmas Mass. Okay. And that's so important because when we talk about Epiphany, you can't talk about Epiphany and not talk about Christmas. You know, they're joined at the hip. Yeah. You yeah. know, they're 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 sort of one and the same. Um, and they belong together. So what's the connection between his human birth? and his baptism in in the River Jordan. I'm just going to read one prayer in the Christmas Mass. This is the third. We have three Christmas Masses, midnight, dawn, and then daytime. This is from the daytime Christmas Mass, which is the principal uh, Christmas Mass. This is the post-communion prayer. So it's the last prayer, the last proper. And it says, grant we beseech the Almighty God that as he who was born this day, the Savior of the world, is the author of our heavenly birth, so he may likewise bestow on us the gift of everlasting life. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he who was born this day, Jesus, today's his nativity. He's born of the blessed virgin today as a human baby, and in his, as, as he is born, he is the author of our heavenly birth. Mm-hmm. So there's a correlation and i'm just reading one prayer but this is woven entirely through the christmas season and the masses and the m's and everything there's a major emphasis basically what's being said is is that our heavenly birth finds its realization its genesis in his human birth so basically christ's human birth is our heavenly birth it's the it's the birth of human it's the new birth of humanity of the new man So what's our heavenly birth? What's that referring to? Baptism. Our heavenly birth is our baptism. Okay? This is where you get the connection really profoundly, actually, in the West. Again, I don't know if the East emphasizes it or not, but in the West, you get this profound connection between baptism and nativity. Because when we are baptized, we're born again. We're born from above, right? That's, you know, that's our understanding of baptism. We're born again. But what's really happening is we are being joined in our baptism to his nativity, to his hmm. human birth. And so, and so it's his human birth. It's when the Son of God is born of the virgin as a man, as a baby, you know, the holy child. He is born free from the stain of sin, from all contagion. And, and we actually say in our prayers that at his birth, all iniquity is blotted out. Well, what do you mean all iniquity is blotted out? There's still plenty of iniquity around. I mean, it's around us all over the place. What do they mean by all iniquity? They mean all iniquity from the human race, from the new human race, the last Adam. Right. He's the new human. And, and we really understand that, that our new birth, which we experience through the instrument of baptism is actually rooted in his nativity of becoming a human baby. Wow um so his his birth is our rebirth <laughs> we're reborn in his human birth and 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 what he does then he he lo he later gets baptized and creates the instrument baptism then becomes the instrument the door for us to participate in his human birth
0: for our new birth in him yeah. you know uh, in the uh, east i know at least in sermons, sermonizing, and I'm sure in uh, the liturgics as well, there's an obvious an intentional connection, many connections made between Christ's baptism and his death and resurrection, as he clearly is also um, showing, figuring the, the going down into death that is the waters and coming, rising up again. Uh, but this this connection also with his birth that you've just laid out in his baptism makes an even more interesting triple connection between birth baptism and death and resurrection uh in that again in the birth in the cave of bethlehem there is there are so many parallels to the cave of his sepulcher and his rising again and so and you know our our birth in him in our baptism also makes us participate in his death and resurrection and so there's this, uh, you know, you, you've connected, the stronger connection in my mind had been between his baptism and his death and resurrection. Now I've got this strong uh, contact in my head between his baptism and his birth, and the birth and, and death and resurrection was also connected. Um, and so now I've got this this web of connections between these three uh, pivotal feast days, which is so- fascinating.
1: It, it it is, and I saved the best for last. You anticipated. Uh, no <laughs> you anticipated my last my last point, which is the best part, actually. So, so yes, exactly. We we regularly associate our baptism, Christian baptism, with death. We go into the waters and we die with Him. But we also regularly associate it. With, new, with birth, the baptism is a death, and it is a being reborn, born anew. And we call the font a womb, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that's, mm-hmm. I do all the time. I assume other preachers do. Uh, we refer to the font as a womb. But this is really cool. We, have, we often refer to the font as a womb of the church, of mother church, and we speak of mother church, okay? But I don't know how often we are thinking of the font In the way that St. Leo boldly, amazingly, profoundly refers to the baptismal font in the church as the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's, I've never even, I, I don't know if that's common or if I just missed this somewhere, but that's pretty amazing.
0: So if we're born in Christ and we're born into Christ's life through baptism, which makes the baptismal font. The womb, whose womb would it be but the Virgin Mary's?
1: Yeah. Well, the, the point is, is our birth into the Christ is our birth into his nativity. Like we we are entering in somehow through baptism becomes the instrument, the sacramental instrument that he creates for us by being baptized himself, which really unfolds or opens up the opportunity for us to to, to, to join ourselves to his human birth when he's a baby. Hmm. And, and it also creates this amazing and beautiful sort of opportunity to venerate the holy child, the holy babe, which we do in the West a lot. You know, we carry the baby back to the creche. We venerate the creche. It's very important to set the creche up. And, and this becomes a very important part of our whole Christmas epiphany season. Of, of making that intimate connection with the holy babe, the holy child. And when we think of new birth in the baptismal font, we should be thinking of our of 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 us entering into you know his nativity and and being this, you know joined to him in his nativity, I suppose I should say yeah so so basically what Leo says in his sermon is he, he basically says that the, the, the baptismal font is the womb of Mary. He says the font is filled with water and the Holy Spirit, just as the womb of Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and he, he makes this amazing connection between our new birth and Christ's human birth as being the same thing. So, that for me, and that's all done at Christmas time, actually, uh, but that's the connection of the baptism of Christ at Epiphany. So, with that
0: connection between baptism and nativity, which, uh, of course, is, like you said, joined at the hip with the, the Feast of Epiphany, what about baptism and its connection, theological connection to the veneration of the Magi? I was reading Dom Geranger, I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of his name, recently, and uh, he said something, I don't remember, I don't have it up, so I can't quote him, but he said something that made me think about this connection which i'd never thought of before in the adoration of the magi all of our iconography east and west basically shows the magi coming and the familiar picture of saint mary holding the baby jesus on her lap becoming sort of the the throne of the wisdom of god but what she's doing is presenting her son to to the gentiles to, to these people who've come to to venerate him and she's almost saying in this action you know behold my son <laughs> in whom i am well pleased and who says that elsewhere but the father of christ and this happens at the baptism and so on the feast day of epiphany with the magi you have the mother of our lord saying behold my son and on the uh, octave during the baptism you have the father of our lord saying behold my son which again connects in my mind to the the crucifixion his death when jesus um you know t- tells he's he's leaving his father um in heaven And his mother on earth to be wedded to his bride, the church, you know, this, this happens, this marriage happens on the cross. And and there you have mother and father again, his father above him in heaven and his mother there at the foot of the cross. Um, Anyway, so that, that mother and father, that's a beautiful,
1: a beautiful meditation and, and parallelism. I mean, he's born in time of a mother without a father. He's born outside from eternity of a father without a mother. And and you sort of have this reflected in his human birth at the nativity, and in his in, in, in and the at revelation the, of the magi, yeah, yeah,
0: because he's being presented um, by yeah. by both to the world.
1: Yeah, yeah it's a beautiful meditation. Hmm. So there's there's
0: two of the of the trilogy.
1: There's two. The third one, I'll just I'll just real quick touch on because it's um you know we have the Cana uh, the miracle at Cana. And as I said, this originated in the east, but sort of faded out in the west. It, it stuck as as one of the major uh, themes in the trilogy of themes for 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 epiphany. And basically, you know, it's the first manifestation, the first um, miracle. John says where he manifests his glory, and so that's probably why this came to became you know become an emphasis or thematic. There are other reasons as well.
0: And you know, what's interesting is that it sort of kicks off. Um, it, you're right. It has a different character than sort of this presentation by his mother to the world and this presentation um, via the voice of the father to the world where where Jesus is being, he's not actively doing anything. He's being presented. There, he's, He has a passive role by being shown and revealed. Uh, but in this last He's he's active. He's beginning his ministry. Well, I
1: don't know. I think you. I think you just touched on something there. <laughs> think about it. no. I think you, I think you're right. And you're, then you you didn't listen to yourself. He actually is passive in the story. He says it's not my hour. His Why mother do does there?
0: present. You're and, right. And, his and she
1: presents him and says, "No, you need to do this." And he's and, yeah. and she says, "Do whatever he tells you." And he's like, "Okay, mom, fine, I'll do okay, it." Okay, so. But-
0: so it has a dual character. It's a hinge point. It includes yeah. both. Yeah. Um, so That's he he begins he begins in the same character uh, being presented by his mother. Do whatever he tells you. Um. But then he takes up he takes up the beginning of his his active role, which then leads us into the the rest of the season. You know, Sunday after Sunday following, we yes. get we yes. get more actions and more teaching, and, yes. and so now yes. now we've kicked off into um in the temporal cycle Jesus is now active for the first right. time
1: yes yes flowing out of his baptism and then this first miracle and and I was I wasn't going to like go into this in into this third you know theme too deeply because just because of time but but you you bring up a really good point i think besides it being a manifestation of his glory in the words of saint john which definitely tied into epiphany and theophany but the role of his mother in this story is so dominant and, you know, uh, so important that that also, I think, is a, is, is a very important reason that ties it in with the nativity, mm. the nativity mm-hmm. epiphany. And, and, and yes. so the whole, that whole nativity cycle uh, is her, you know, very strong presence in this story. So, you know, there's a lot there to, that you could unpack, but that's, that's kind of the connection. Okay, uh, you know, the, the last kind of thing I thought would be interesting for folks is to just maybe mention a couple of the, there's there's a few important liturgical attendant customs that happen, and and then there are some uh, interesting cultural things that are done around this feast, because it's a very important feast, and anytime you have something that's important, it, it affects culture. Um but liturgically, uh, there, there there's a prayer in the canon called the Communicates prayer, and it's a standard prayer. It's part of the common for pretty much every mass, except um, there are a few of the major feasts that have their own proper Communicates prayer. Okay, and so Nativity, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, and Epiphany. So Epiphany falls in that cat. It, it, it tells you that it's ranking. So Epiphany is right there with Nativity, Easter, Ascension, and Pentecost. And so it has its own communicates. And it's real short. I'll just read it to you so you can kind of get a sense about what the communicates is. It says, in communion with and celebrating the most sacred day, whereon thine only begotten Son, co-eternal with thee in thy glory, visibly appeared in the body in the true substance of our flesh. So that's... Hmm. That's a proper prayer that is just said on 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 the feast day and throughout the octave of epiphany, okay. and then on the octave day. Uh, the other thing that's unique, uh, which is not part of the actual liturgical the mass prayers, but it there's a, a epiphany proclamation that is done on the Feast of Epiphany. And this is usually sung by the deacon. It is sung um, to the same tune that the exalted is sung to and it announces the movable dates of the major feast days in the coming year so basically the the feast of easter Pascha, was based settled by alexandria because they had the best you know scientists astronomers i guess to figure that out that complex date out and then they would send it out and then this this proclamation would be sung i think usually after after the gospel and um, they would sing it to this chant tune. And they would basically announce all the dates, you know, the date of Septuagesima is the date of this that, you know, and um, this is before we had Google Calendar, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like tradition. So we still do it. Uh, yep. It's It's kind of a cool thing. And we and we sing this proclamation. Then, oh, and I, I should mention, I didn't even say anything about the blessing of water. We, uh, the, in the East, is a major thing, the blessing of water, and, and baptism is an illumination, so they connect the blessing of water, the baptism, with illumination, and so it's also called the Feast of Lights, so the feast, you know, so light is a major theme because of the illumination of baptism. In the West, we also bless water. Um, for epiphany and um, that water is then given out to the parishioners in the church they take it home they use it they drink it you know if they're sick they bless their children with it they sprinkle it around their homes and so the 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 blessing of waters at epiphany is is a major thing Um, it's probably a little bit more you know culturally liturgically prominent in the east you know where you've got Mm. people dying into frozen lakes uh, chasing crosses and that sort of thing but um But it does exist in the West, and it is a big part of our our feast and our tradition and a big part of our culture. Then at the end of the feast, um, we bless chalk, interestingly enough. So at the end of the Mass on Epiphany, we bless chalk, and this chalk is going to be used to go and um, we do house blessings in the East as well. East and West, we do house blessings during Epiphany. Um, What's unique about our house blessings is we bring the three Magi with us. The priest comes to the home of every parishioner, and he invites the the three uh, Magi to come into the home, and we ask their intercession to bless the home. And then at the end of the blessing, we go around and sprinkle the house with, with holy water, the water that was blessed at Epiphany. And then we leave the people some water, and we mark their door with the year. So it'll be, you know, two zero when I'll be doing this in a couple, you know, next week, two zero across, and then uh, the initials of the wise men, Casper cross, B cross, M cross, 23. So you'll see that on sometimes on people's door uh, written in chalk. And um, and we do that every year. Bless them. It's a great tradition and and a beautiful thing to do. Um, yeah, I've still the other got thing uh, is,
0: last years over, over my door yeah. that have to be wiped off for lot, this year.
1: Well, a lot of my parishioners leave. They like, some people wipe it off for the next year. Some people leave it. I have people that have 15 years of <laughs> blessings <laughs> on their door. They just like to leave them <laughs> up. So their neighbors probably think they're part of some weird, strange, you know, esoteric cult or something. What yeah, are these, yeah. you know? Uh, written all over the, the door the, the, uh, the last thing I'll mention is um, the crash uh, and this is uh, this is also whenever we tell people about this that aren't familiar with it they're like that is so cool so we, we, we always set up a crash uh, in the church uh, nativity scene of course and the we carry the holy child the Bambino back to the crash on Christmas Eve and we place the child in the crash and, and venerate the, the crash there and say some prayers but the wise men of course are not there yet. Uh, the wise men are not at the crash on Christmas. They show up uh, at Epiphany. And so the, the kind of the fun tradition is, is we'll have the wise men in the church. And every day between Christmas, over the 12 days of Christmas leading up to Epiphany, We will move them through the church. Every day they get a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. So people are coming to church during those 12 days and they're seeing the wise men making their way to the creche. (laughs) And then on Epiphany, they get placed in the creche and they're there. And the wise men have made it to come and and adore the, the Christ child. Very effective
0: object lesson.
1: Yes, it's great. And you can everybody, people do that in their home too, because everybody has a crash at home. And especially if you have kids, they get to move the wise men every day over those 12 days and it kind of becomes a thing. So that's kind of fun. And then there, there's just, there's just lots and lots of sort of cultural traditions, food traditions, but just to mention two that people may have heard of, um, that are pretty commonly done even in America, Um, because of our connection with with certain traditions in Europe. There's a king cake, and so you bake a cake and you put a gold coin in it. There's different ways of doing this, but you put a gold coin in it, you slice the cake. In France, one piece of cake would get set aside for God, and actually you would give it to a poor person, a large piece, and you give it to the poor. But then the rest of the cake would get divided up, and whoever got the gold piece in their cake was king for a day. And um, in in Britain, they didn't use cake; they used a pea and a bean. So they split the cake between <laughs> men and women. And uh, I guess they were cheapskates or something. But um, nobody got any gold. You got either a pea or a bean, <laughs> and so you were the bean king for a day, I guess, in in Britain. But we do this in my family. We've been doing this for years. So on the Feast of Epiphany, we all go to church. We have mass. It's glorious. And then we have a big extended family feast and we have a king cake and there's a gold coin in there or a fake gold coin sometimes. Um, and, and, and we have a big party and see who gets the piece of gold. You's, you've also heard of wassailing. Yeah. Uh, here we go wassailing. Yeah. W- Wassel was-, wassail was a drink made from apples, like a cider, like a spiced cider. And this is primarily, I think, in England. And they would drink this on Twelfth Night. They would make this Wassail, and then they would uh, go out singing Epiphany carols, dressed up as the Three Kings. So they carry like a a lantern on a broomstick or something. If you've ever seen old kind of pictures of you know mm-hmm. English kids going out and caroling on Twelfth Night, so they would dress up as the as the twelve wise as the wise men and go out caroling on 12th night and drink Wassel, and it's called we go a Wassailing, which you know we're going to go caroling but um some nice things you can do with your family
0: yeah and i would i would love to see more of those traditions be revived um but like you said traditions tend to follow from you know how seriously people are taking taking church so right. let's get everybody in church and celebrating epiphany the way it ought to be and in the tradition's can can follow organically from that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree I agree with that. I think I think just trying to sort of like fabricate a culture from reading a history book. I'm not sure that's the best way to go about things. Um which is, you know, in our YouTube age, you know, where we get, we just watch something on YouTube and then we we sort of mimic it and then we're an expert. You know, that's not really how life works right you know um we you said it we should we should go to church and and invest ourselves in the prayers and the liturgy and then begin to build our life around that as a community and then some of these things will sort of uh organically um develop and and make sense in the context in which we're living beautiful
0: well you have given us a Fascinating picture of Epiphany in its sort of threefold nature in the West from a historical perspective and then from sort of its liturgical and theological. And then followed it up with, um, what, what, how people have celebrated and, and lived that out, which has just been really, really interesting. And I think people will, uh, learn something from this. I certainly have and hopefully will, um, inspire them to take Epiphany seriously and, Go to church and uh, explore these these customs for themselves, like the the wise men and traveling through the house. And yeah, this has been great.
1: Well, good. Thank you so much. Um, I love I love when we have these conversations and uh, you know about our faith. Me
0: too. And- always fruitful, always exciting and interesting conversations. Well,
1: thank you so much. I enjoyed it, Stephen.
0: All right, we'll talk soon.
1: Okay. God bless.